From Fear to Flattery, The Analog Road Trip. I'm sitting here in Flattery Towers, looking at the next part of the book, and I'm flicking through the book here. I, I, and I'm reading it, and I started narrating it a little bit. And I'm like, there just isn't much here. You know, I'm not hating on Arkansas at all. But it made me think that uh, there's not much difference in the country. If you if you were to drop somebody, I guess anywhere, like, say, Pittsburgh in the east to Wichita, Kansas in the further west, that's about a 1,000 miles. And then that's central belt. So not far up north, not way down south, but you could drop anywhere between those two points. And if you didn't know where you were, it'd be hard-pressed to tell where you were. It could be anywhere in the Midwest, right? The architecture's the same. And especially at the time of year that we started this trip in, which would have been March, it's grey, it's dull, it's kind of cold. I wasn't going to narrate the book. Obviously, I don't narrate it word for word. I skip parts out. But I think in this, when I started reading it, I was skipping so many parts out that this part of uh, <laughs> this part of the country going to uh, like Pikeville, Arkansas, it, track capital of the world. Great place, right? I mean, it was okay. I didn't see much of it. We arrived in darkness and... Uh, Left early after getting woken up, but um, yeah, I mean, it was okay. Uh, the thing that stands out for me is uh, Emily and I went for a steak dinner that night. It's not something, today, it's not something we ever do. I mean, rarely, like, would I have steak once a year? Maybe, and that's if it's a business out, and just not something I eat too often. But we decided to have steak because basically we weren't having pizza that night. That, that will give you an insight into our diet. We went to a Lone Star Steakhouse, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Maybe it's still there. Great place. Very, very friendly servers. What struck me was was kind of funny, though, that near the end of the meal, the, a male server came up. Real nice guy. Good looking, you know, good looking bugger. Nice, you know, young, 20, handsome, 20 something guy. Emily liked him. And Emily said to him, you know, where, uh, where would you go to get a drink in this town? You know, and it's a college town. Bear in mind that's a college town. So, you know, he's, he's, he's replying to Emily, telling, telling us to go to. Uh, Kind of an area where the, maybe the students would go. And then, just as he finished his sentence, he looks over at me and he says, even people your age would go there. And I'm like, well, what does he mean by that? What did he mean? Well, I, I guess I knew what he meant. You know, at the time I was 30 and he was, what, 21, maybe? Maybe 21, 22? That's a big gap. Big gap. I, I, I was no longer a student. No longer could pass as a student either. Maybe a mature student. But it's just funny that now, you know... Uh, Years later, I'm pushing 50 years old now. It's almost 20 years since that. I guess I was old then. <laughs> to him, anyway. Yeah, 30's not old, folks. 30's not old. So at this point, you know, I'm kind of done talking about Arkansas. Uh, it, it was boring to drive through, boring to write about, and uh, I'm sure it would be pretty boring to hear about me talking about it. So instead, I'm going to tell you something different. Uh, I'm going to talk about my rental car experience in Europe over the last couple of weeks. So I'm I'm originally European, you know that, Scotsman. Went back to to Scotland, uh, visited Ireland and Northern Ireland over New Year's. Took my took my two boys. And so I rented a car when I'm in Scotland, and also one in Northern Ireland, so we could drive around, look at some of the sites, things that struck me different, and it makes me realise I've been away from Europe for a while. Both of the cars were stick shift, and that, well, that's not a surprise, 90% of the cars in Europe are stick shift. What did surprise me was that both the cars had six gears. Now, I've never seen a six-gear car in my life. I'd never driven one until a couple of weeks ago, but I guess they're standard now. 
it was surprising. It didn't uh, take long to get used to, but when I grew up in Europe, and, and that's 20 to 30 years ago, you, you had at most five gears. So this was a, a hugely welcome surprise for me. I was really uh, intrigued by how, how fast I had to go to get that sixth, into that sixth gear, and the answer was not too fast. So that's great. But one thing that was not so good, uh, you know, we, we f- early one morning we flew from Edinburgh to Belfast, and it's like a 40-minute flight. It was a 7 o'clock flight. And uh, so we flew in darkness, and we arrived in darkness. That part of Europe in the, at the end of the year doesn't get light till well after 9 o'clock. So I'm in my rental car with the boys sitting in the back in, in the parking lot in Belfast Airport. It's an Audi, beautiful new car. Uh, but, you know, the one thing it was missing? A USB. I had no real way to charge, uh, charge my, my uh, cell phone, which I was going to use for navigation. I used for everything. We all need a cell phone these days. It's, uh, everyone's got to have one, right? Uh, there was a, bizarrely, a cigarette lighter, and I guess if I'd brought one of those uh, USB cigarette lighter chargers, if I'd thought to do that, maybe I would have been okay. But, man, even my 10-year-old subcompact Honda Fit that I, ha- that I drive on occasion, even that is a USB. I-, I couldn't believe there was no charge point. There was no way to charge, easy way to charge a cell phone or a device in, in a rental car in going into 2020. So you know what I had to do? Because of my, I was probably at 50% power for my uh, phone, and I knew I was going to be using it all day for navigating around Northern Ireland, because that's not where I'm from, and we had, a, we had a lot of driving to do that day. I had to head towards the next nearest town. I actually went, uh, went to Maps on my cell phone and typed in coffee shop, and we found a Starbucks. Now, I guess people don't get up early in Northern Ireland because the whole time we, we found the Starbucks and the whole time we were there, we were the only customers. And it was like we stayed there at a half hour. And ostensibly we were there um, just to charge our devices. I, I, I had an international charger and, you know, I ordered uh, an almond milk latte. And let's not go into how bizarre that tasted because uh, it, it tasted different to the ones I'm used to. But I ordered that, and me and the boys sat for half an hour in Starbucks, charging the phones and devices enough so that we would have some power. It, but it, it just, it, it struck me, it's just odd. It's an odd thing going in, you know, and we're in, you are 2020, and, and there's rental cars out there that don't come with a charge point. That's, um, that's a fail on the part of, uh, I guess, Hertz. And I suppose the one other thing that, uh, was new to me, and this isn't peculiar to, uh, I guess, rental cars or indeed European rental cars. It was the wider spread use of touch screens in vehicles. Now I get it. I, I, I get that this is the way forward, and this is what everybody's car is going to be like at some point. But as useful as it is to have um, an iPad controlling everything, or something that looks like an iPad controlling everything, it has some drawbacks too. Uh, you need something tactile so if you're wearing gloves most gloves don't work with a touch screen now it was cold in Ireland and Scotland and I was wearing gloves I didn't want to take them off but for me to change almost any, any sort of control in that car I had to take my gloves off also and this is the bigger issue and this brings up a road safety concern I had to take my eyes off the road to look where I was tapping because there's nothing tactile to touch on a on a touchscreen, it's just a, it's a piece of glass. 
on my 10-year-old car, I can alter all manner of things without taking my eyes off the road. I know I can put my hand on a knob or a button or a switch. I know instantly what it is, how far I have to turn it, and what it does. With a touchscreen, you can't do that. So I understand that's technology, that's progress, but uh, sometimes in a digital world, analog is still king. So anyway, back to the uh, back to Theatre Flattery. We drove north to Lawrence, Lawrence, Kansas, very edge edge of Kansas. It's a it's a college town near to Kansas City. On the way there, I took a wrong turn and we stopped in the middle of the road to consult the map, like. There was nothing for miles in front of us or behind us. You know, I think there was a grain elevator to one side. This is, we were in rural Kansas. We were not using highways. There was no highway for us to take at that point. Or if there was, we weren't using it. But how often can you do that? You just can't do that much these days anywhere. Maybe out west in the United States. But it was kind of fun just to slow down to a stop and pull out the map, pull out the paper map. Anyway, Lawrence itself, it was raised to the ground during the Civil War by a a bushwhacker called William Quantrill. And he was a a regular Confederate guerrilla. He was from Ohio, and and along with his um, henchmen, a guy called Bloody Bill Anderson, and the James brothers, Jesse James and his brother, they spent the Civil War years robbing, looting, fighting against the North and their sympathisers. Although I think if the situation presented itself, uh, they'd rob from just about anyone. Quantrill was shot and killed near Danville, Kentucky, which turned out actually to be our last night on the road we stopped in Danville, so uh, more about that later. The area we'd driven through from Carthage was known as the Burnt, B-U-R-N-T, country, on account of it being almost completely eradicated of people and burnt to a cinder. And, And that was revenge by the Union Army for the atrocities that Quantrill and his band had committed in Lawrence. Emily had pre booked by far the worst hotel of the trip so far, in Lawrence, an elderly travel lodge on Iowa Street. I mean, that's the problem with road trips, right? Do you pre-book and risk reserving the worst place in town, or do you just take a chance and end up driving for hours longer than expected because every room in town seems to have gone already? Our air conditioner was pathetic. In fact, almost sucking air out of the room and replacing it with stale warm air from someone else's room. We tossed a coin, Emily lost, and she trudged along to the corridor to the lobby to, to complain. The manager arrived a weasel-faced dude wearing slippers. That's it, he said. There ain't nothing I can do about it, waving his arms in the direction of the useless girl. By this point, we were both really junked out on on burgers and fries and other junk food, so we looked for a supermarket where we could buy some fresh produce for dinner. It was surprisingly difficult, driving for miles, but we found nothing. The irony was not lost on me that here in Kansas, breadbasket of America, we could find no bread or fruit. The following day, Emily noticed that we weren't that far from Nebraska. How often can you say that? So after a quick breakfast, we headed due north to check it out. If nothing else, it meant we would not require the lengthy detour down to Nebraska from South Dakota on our journey back east in about six weeks' time. It was noticeably colder up here, with patches of dirty snow in the ditches. The first town you come to over the state line is Falls City, where with few exceptions, everyone drove either an SUV or a truck. After lunch, we hunted for the falls, didn't find them, and then left heading back east from Missouri once again. Our destination this time was Independence, Missouri, at one time a town in its own rights, but now just a suburb of the Kansas City metropolis. Independence was where all the westward trails started, almost the last civilised stopping-off point when heading west. 
From here, wagon trains headed to Santa Fe, California, and Oregon, to name but three places. In 1850, the United States Census Bureau stated that almost all of the land east of the Missouri River was settled, with at least two people per square mile. Aside from a few remote areas, the remainder of the country was empty, waiting to be settled by droves of plucky homesteaders. The Census Bureau obviously forgot to count the Native Americans that lived in the West. At its peak, independence had over 50,000 people per year passing through it to all points west. Checking out of her anti-palace the following day, Emily nosed the accord out into the late morning traffic of northern Kansas. On this day awash with little fluffy clouds, a perfect morning to drive across the prairies. We were driving diagonally across Kansas, almost as long a drive as you can make it and still be in the state. At one minute after 1pm the following day, we pass our first oil well, a small outfit in the centre of a large field. We stopped for the evening in Seward County's Liberal, about four miles from the border with Oklahoma. There was a weird gaseous cloud hovering above the town, and I asked the receptionist at the Super 8 where we were staying what it was. How should I know, he said. Liberal was pretty small, like one main street called Pancake Avenue, named after a yearly race run between Liberal and the town of Oney in England, and that was about it. Aside from pancake racing, there's really only one reason to come to Liberal, the Land of Oz. L. Frank Baum, the author of The Wizard of Oz, the novel on which the famous movie is somewhat loosely based, was never specific as to where the leading character Dorothy Gale was from. We're only ever told it's Kansas. An enterprising local couple, along with the authorities in Liberal, desperate to entice people to their out-of-the-way little town, seized upon this opportunity and declared Dorothy was a Liberal girl. Thus, the Land of Oz was born. The directions we received the following morning from the young receptionist were as follows. Follow the dirt road behind the hotel for 30 seconds. Stop. Being a little after 9am, there was no one else there. I hate going into things first like this. Like, it means I'm some sort of sad, pathetic loser who goes to places like the Land of Oz at 9 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. I wasted as much time as I could in the car, pretending I had a problem with my shoe, until Emily said, so, shall we get out of the car? Things like that never bothered Emily. I got out and we walked slowly to the building that acted as a visitor centre. The place is actually called the Coronado Museum, named after Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, a Spanish explorer famous for wasting a lot of time, effort and money searching for seven non-existent cities of gold in what is now the American Southwest. In his quest, he ventured as far north as Kansas, hence the museum. However, the museum is fairly thin on his work, and mainly full of liberal abilia from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. That didn't make it a bad place, though. There was no one inside, and so we skulked about the small gift shop, looking at all the unofficial Wizard of Oz merchandise. From nowhere, a large woman appeared, and seemed as startled at finding customers in her store as we were at her for being there. We exchanged pleasantries for a few minutes, before asking about the tour and we were told the tour guide would be along in a minute, and if we wanted to, we could walk around the museum upstairs. I can't say I've been in many museums where the museum forms part of the exhibit, but this was one of them. It was kind of cool. Most of the rooms upstairs had real touchable artefacts from early days of liberal, like a dentist chair, a post office counter, an organ, that sort of thing. Later, I wasn't quite sure when I went to the toilet, such was the vintage of the plumbing, if I was in a genuine latrine, or if I was peeing into an exhibit. Whatever the case, I flushed as quietly as possible, just in case the woman downstairs heard me. 
and ran up the stairs shrieking. The quote-unquote Dorothy appeared a little while later, but seemed in no hurry to start the tour. Emily and I had budgeted about one and a half hours for the Land of Oz experience, and we were keen to get it underway. At one point I heard the, the two ladies whispering and looked up. The gift shop lady said, we were just talking about you. I told her you sound like Mel Gibson. <laughs> Eventually Emily said, uh, so shall we go see the Land of Oz? And so we did. It became apparent within a few minutes why the guide had been procrastinating. She'd been waiting for other visitors to do the tour too. We were joined by a party of four. Grandma, Mum and two daughters, about ten and eight, outside the visitor centre. And I have to admit, I was a little bit relieved. It meant the ratio of guide to visitor had shot up from one to two to one to six. A short walk along an ersatz yellow brick road led you to Dorothy's house, supposedly a genuine turn-of-the-century Kansan farmhouse, done out to look as if the gales lived there. Our guide explained in much detail how life would have been for the fictitious Dorothy, Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. We learned about butter churning, refrigeration methods, and what pastimes there were round the start of the 20th century, which, viewed today, seemed pretty grim. Interesting as it was, especially the selection on flat-pack housing being delivered by train, we were primarily here to see the fabled Land of Oz, and not some old farmhouse, and I tried to show my impatience to the others, only for it to fall on deaf ears. Eventually, we were allowed in the Land of Oz, housed in a large shed. It was awesome. You're guided through chronological scenes from the movie, using like little light bulbs, mannequins, and odd bits and bobs, with a few interactive interludes on the way. So our guide, a young ginger-haired girl, wearing a distinctly un-Dorothy-like short skirt, interspersed her narrative with a number of running jokes, usually involving me in the punchline somewhere, while essentially repeating the same sentence each time garnished with a steady flow of undercooked ad-libs. She would say, Hey, did you guys know that Dorothy originally had blonde hair? Or did you guys know that the munchkins you saw inside the little houses were kids? Or even, Hey, did you guys know that Margaret Hamilton tried to go back to teaching but the kids did not trust someone who played the part of a witch? After each one of those, we all had to shake our heads and say no, as it was obvious we were not aware of these factoids. At the end, there was a small museum crammed with Ozabilia, from Munchkin autograph postcards to the actual model house used in the twister scene near the start of the movie. That was cool, said Emily. It had a nice human touch to it. You mean some of the stuff didn't work? Uh-huh. It was almost midday as we staggered blinking out of the shed into the car. We were ahead of schedule in terms of days. However, we would be entering the West in just a few minutes where the lodging had the propensity to be few and far between. As I pulled out of the parking lot, Emily said, Hey, did you guys know you're going in the wrong direction? Cute, aren't I? After a couple of minutes' silence, I thought I'd keep the Land of Oz experience going. In a squeaky falsetto, I said, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Annie Em. Actually, we are, said Emily. The Oklahoma sign's just ahead of us. Look, I felt stupid. Five minutes outside of Liberal and you're in Texas County, Oklahoma. It looked different from Kansas, like more, more westy. Not the full-blown cactus and tumbleweed or the proper west. This was like the, the mild west. Within the hour we'd entered the town of Texhoma, which Emily continuously called Texahoma for the remainder of the trip, much to my annoyance, obviously straddling the Texas-Oklahoma border. It was hot. Texas hot. 
this small section of Texas seemed, seemed to be big, scorching and, and full of cattle and the associated stench was almost overpowering. On one long stretch of straight-ass road, we fell in with, with two other fast-moving cars, a blacked-out windowed SUV with Texas plates and a single-occupant beige sedan. The three of us would pull out from the main line of traffic, scream along on the wrong side of the road and then pull back in whenever we needed to. Occasionally we'd swap positions so, so the uh, sedan would be out on point, I'd be in the middle and, and Tex would be bringing up the rear. It was in this configuration and while we were all travelling above 70 miles an hour that a cop going in the opposite direction slowed down rapidly as we passed. I got that shivery feeling all over. In the rear view mirror I saw the telltale brake lights of the cop car come on and, and it swing around. Then the roof mounted lights came on. We all instantly slowed to below a legal speed. He stopped Tex, presumably because he was bringing up the rear, and was the first of the three he got to. I thanked everyone that I'd swapped places a couple of minutes before. I think you've used up the luck for this trip, said Emily. I hate stuff like that, especially as I can't help half believing it too.